Well, welcome, Deep Seekers, to Episode 6. I'm Sean O'Callaghan. This is the Deep Seeker Podcast. Our guest on this episode is Martin Reid. Born in 1965 and having lived in Janjuk and Torquay his entire life, other than a six-year stint in the French surf town of Cabreton, Martin has, uh, Martin's the son of Al Reid, who was a Bells Beach pioneer in the 1950s and one of the crew that carved in a track to Bells Beach, which was previously inaccessible. His mother, Pauline, was a TV news presenter in Ballarat, and she throws it all in to take on the adventure of a coastal lifestyle with Al. A major decision, no doubt, in those days, particularly given that surfers were considered to be counterculture bums. You finish year 11, Martin, in uh, finish year 11 and then uh, become an electrician. Uh, then in 1999, you sit for an analytical reasoning test and accepted into law at Deakin University. Most recently, managing partner at Coulter Roach in Geelong, leaving the firm last year and that role, of course, in 2020. Martin, sorry to compress your life into a couple of sentences, but welcome to you. Well, and welcome to you, Sean. Thank you very much for that. No worries at all. Martin, I'm, I'm intrigued by the decision that your mother made back in the day. So we're talking, what was that, 1950s, she's a news presenter, you know, mm. I guess you'd say made it, um, forged a path, and then throws it all in to move down to Torquay. What was behind that move? That's a pretty courageous move. Well, it is. And if a lot of you, um, the people listening to this podcast who uh, know much about the history of Torquay would know there's a big connection between Ballarat and Torquay. And my mother's family had had a holiday house in Torquay since the 1880s or the 1890s. So my mother had been in and around Torquay for a very long time. But when she met my father, um, and ironically, they met in Melbourne rather than in Torquay, at a, at, a, at a dance, um, she was already well acquainted with Torquay, but what she never thought for a second that she'd end up living there. It was a place that everybody went for the summer holidays. Um, when when they uh, agreed to marry and to start a family, the deal I think originally was that Dad would live in Mum and Dad would live in Geelong as a compromise uh, between um, Ballarat and Torquay, but that never eventuated. And I, I think it's more of a reflection on the role that men played in society back in those days, Sean, rather than anything, any particular decision of my mother, that when the family was going to be started and, and the, uh, the, husband, um, the husband wanted his life to be the way it was, the decision was taken. We were moved, they, they were living in Torquay. Uh, Dad had his business down there. Dad owned a, a bakery shop in Pearl Street. Uh, and that was the end. And women, women were, were made in those times to compromise their life and, I often wonder, um, it's a very different town these days, but I often wonder about my mother's life in the 19, early 1960s with four children, no car because my father had the car, uh, in what was a very, very quiet town with a four-square store. It wasn't much of a life that, um, for her. Um, it's very different these days, obviously, for mothers and everything, but it was a big decision that she, she took, but women did that back in those days. I think they sacrificed themselves and their careers um, because that's what women were expected to do. And as a father of two girls, I'm very happy that society has moved on. Yeah, big change in that time frame in, I don't know, what do you call that, a generation. Um, and also, I think even just to be able to achieve that within itself sort of shows what kind of person she would have been from, you know, the professional realm. And then You've, your father, uh, it, it seems to me that you had quite the relationship with your father. He was a, he was a personality. He was, so it sounds like he was quite influential, not only on yourself, but on others. And Martin, you were overseas and then you lost, you lost your father to leukemia. And just to clarify, were you here at that point in time? What, you came back for that, is that right? 
No, I was, in, I was, um, I've been down, I was living in Capiton. I'd been to the airport, airport to pick up my then French girlfriend who was coming back from university in Strasbourg. And um, my, one of my housemates um, had a funny look at her face. So I got back and said, Morris Cole's been around to visit. Uh, uh, and I went, uh oh, uh, it's not often that he would do that back in those days. You've got to ring Australia because that, this was in 1992. Was you know, I didn't ring Australia, I used to write letters home. So I rang and was told that dad was in hospital and he had a couple of days to live and I'll keep him alive until I got there. And so I flew, I flew back um, and he was alive for about 18 hours, I think, um, when I got back. So I got to see him sort of on a ventilating machine. Um, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't conscious or anything like that. So it was, it was undetected leukemia. So he, he, he went from riding his push bike, I think, on a Tuesday afternoon to be dead by Saturday. So um, it was very quick. Wow. And had you, I mean, obviously an incredibly tough time. Had you been back to see him whilst you were away at all? No, that, that, was, that was two and a half years at that point. So I'd been gone for two and a half years then. I, would, I came back to Australia for six weeks for the, the funeral. We um, scattered Dad's ashes out of bells and everything, and then I went back to France after that. So what sort of influence did your father have on you, I, I know you made mention of his, his effect as a surfer. Uh, sorry, not his effect. His I don't know what would you call it. Sort of mentorship as a surfer, or um, what what effect did he have on you across your life? I know that's a big uh, question, but um, yeah, and it's something it's something that you could ask a number of men my age whose fathers were uh, larger than life members of the Torquay community, and I think we'd all say the same thing. That's been it's been both a blessing in one sense, but also it's been a burden um, to be the son of somebody um, that was quite that well-known and that well-respected. I mean, the way that I best describe it to people is I used to just introduce myself as Martin Reed, Alan Reed's son. You know, I'm Alan Reed's son. My name's Martin. That's how I used to introduce myself. And it wasn't really until after my father died that I felt, and I was 25, 26 at the time, that I felt like I'd become my own man. So he had, a, he had an enormous impact on my life, and he still does. He does in many ways, including the, the fact that I'm his identical twin brother. Now, it's, um, it, I look at it myself in the mirror every morning, and I see him, I say, good morning, Al. He says, good morning, Marty. And as my, my children um, would, and my wife would attest to, I, I still utter his sayings to myself from time to time because he was such a huge part of my life um, that he's made such a big impact. And I... It's it's hard to it's hard to get over those types of things. I still feel his presence. I said, as I've said to you um, when I wrote to you that I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I still feel this presence of him in my life. And it it may simply be the fact that he's he I look so similar to him uh, at this age that that I can see him so much. But they men like my father, and I said there are others in Torquay that you would know quite well who have had the same kind of upbringing in a, in a small town. It's it's both a it's both a burden and a blessing to have that type of person. It's very difficult to carve your own way and to become your own man, uh, and to be seen to be an individual and not somebody else's son. But I'd say that I'm not unique in that in that regard. There are a lot of people in Turkey who are like me. Well, you were blessed with good genetics too, Martin. That's uh, I mean that helps, you know, to have the the mature, dapper, good looks of George Clooney too. No one can see that in this podcast, so we can we can stretch the truth on that a little bit if we need to. <laughs> Thank you, Sean. <laughs> um, and so it's 1999. You're an electrician. 
there's now naturally back in the day for those that didn't know, Torquay is a small town. There probably weren't a huge number of pathways other than trades, but you become an electrician and I'd imagine you're surfing a lot. You got money in your pocket, life's good, but there's something more out there for you. And intellectually, maybe you just need a greater, deeper challenge, but you sit an analytical reasoning test, which I'm interested in. How did that come about? What is it? How did it eventuate? And fill in the blanks. I've never heard of it before. Okay. Well, briefly, I and you go go back to my father again. I did see part of my my upbringing was watching my father, who was a you know a dedicated surfer, had four children, uh, mortgage uh, to look after, and who was a frustrate. He was frustrated about his life, and I didn't want that for myself. I wanted to have a free, easy life surfing because you know as you remember when you're young you think you'll be young forever so i left at the i left school at the end of year 11 at on a base on a whim and a friend of mine jeff sims and i both decided to take apprenticeships at the victorian railways as an electrician now i did that because i wanted to have a flexible lifestyle somewhere i could a job i could come and go not be stuck in some kind of career um career path back in the days when that was what was expected of you. You went into one job and you stayed there. So that's why I did that. But I was never, ever intellectually satisfied with the job, but it, it suited me um, It suited me for those purposes. And even after I came back from Europe, it suited me for a period of time just to be able to come and, come and go a bit. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I was you know, getting to, like you said, 1999, I was starting to get to the point where I'd been back in Australia for a number of years and I thought to myself, oh, hang on a minute, this youthful thing's not, not happening anymore. I'll be, you know, I'm turning 30. What am I going to do? I'm going to be stuck in this life forever unless I make a change. And I would like to, you know, credit my now wife, um, um, Sarah Reid, for supporting me in the decision one day to go and do something different because I kept saying I should, I can do something um, more than an electrician. You know, I'm a, I consider myself reasonably intellectual. And so anyway, I went down to the university on my way home from work one day, just went one home from a building site. And the university said, what are you interested in? I said, well, I like politics and I like industrial relations because I worked on large industrial construction. I didn't work on houses. And they said, well, you can do these you know, OH&S degrees. You can do an arts degree. And then the girl said at the end to me, but if you, why don't you consider doing a law degree? That way it gives you the, the, um, the most options you could possibly have. And I sort of I went home that uh, that afternoon and I spoke to Sarah and I said, look, I don't think I could do an order degree. Yes, you can. You should do it. So I went back and spoke to them. I said, because you're a mature age student, you need to sit an analytical reasoning test, which is because I didn't have what, you know, what was NHSC. It's a three and a half hour exam, which is based on questions like poetry. And the, uh, for example, it would be the question, I can remember one of the questions was your love is like a, a fish hook your love is like a fish hook in my eye. And then you then had to write your response. And what does, the, what did the poet mean by that? What is he trying to describe? So I had to answer questions like that. And interestingly, also, there was a, um, there were some, some questions about Aboriginal, about the way, Aboriginal, um, the way their family structures work to, to ensure that there isn't any inbreeding. They've got the most complicated structure uh, um, of mankind to ensure that they can never inbreed. And it's something I'd actually been quite, I've always been quite interested in. And so there was a lot of questions about that and following the, following the paths or even like almost like semi-mechanical questions to, to, to follow that. And it was something that I knew quite a lot about. So um, I, I think that probably helped me. So but that being mature and being able to understand questions as about poetry and things like that, uh, I think 
help that helped me, and I did I did actually reasonably well. They rang me up straight afterwards and said to me at the time, "Look, we're not really supposed to do this, but we'd like to offer you a job because uh, we'd like a job. We'd like to offer you a place in the University of Law." I thought, "Oh, okay," and I hadn't really even thought about it. And from there, it all sort of became another whole story in itself. I um I gave up my work and you know full time work and started working part time or casually, uh, and went straight into the study, which was. What I, if I'd known how hard it was, I perhaps wouldn't have done it if I'd known it was going to be as difficult as it was to start with because I hadn't been to school for quite a long time uh, to get the brain back whirling, whirling again and working was, um, was really tough. The first semester was really tough. I bet and whilst the test had uh, some questions around poetry, I bet there weren't any haiku modules in the law degree. So, <laughs> no, It wasn't. No, there wasn't. It was... Uh, there was straight up my first semester was contract law, criminal law, uh, public law and human rights and torts law. I, think, okay, I don't even know what these words mean. <laughs> straight into the Coliseum. Yeah. Um, and so it's an interesting point around intelligence and intellect and so on. And um, I recall you saying to me at one point in time that there was a barrister that you knew of and referred to, and uh, I distinctly remember the, the phrasing you used. You said his mind was like a very precise instrument. Mm. Um, and it got me thinking, you know, for those outside of law, I guess for all of us that aren't involved or, or having been involved, mm. there's always the, the, you know, that intelligence question. Um, and we all hold intelligences, I'm sorry, hold the, the, the idea of people being intelligent as a, you know, sort of a marker in in status in some ways, but there are so many different levels to intellect and intelligence. You know, there's the problem solving and there's language, the grasp of language, breaking down complexities. You know, there's so much to it. And of course, then there's the emotional intelligence. And Martin, you seem to have a good balance of not only, you know, conventional intellect, but also EQ, the emotional intelligence. Um, what do you think... Uh, again, another broad question, but just to elaborate on your EQ, um, how have you developed that? Do you think do you consciously develop that, and do you continue to? Is it something you're consciously aware of? Well, um, yes, it, well, yes, it is. Um, and again, this this takes me back to the start of, of our discussion and my mother. Now, I was very aware um, from a young age about the compromise situation my mother was in, in the sense that the life that we were living was about my father and about the four of us, the four children, I'm one of four, and not about her. And I was very conscious of that all the time, and I always have been. My mother is a very important figure in my life, and she's still alive. She lives in Jan Jack. Um, but that, that's part of the very, that early formative years, I think, it's always, it's always kept... It's always stayed within me, this feeling about how other people would be affected by a decision I've made or that something I'm about to say. I've always been very keen to ensure that I consider another person's point of view before I do something. Now, people who are listening to this might think that doesn't sound like Martin Reid at all um, because there are certain times when I've I've considered it and decided not to listen to it, obviously. But I think considering another person's point of view when it comes to whether it's from a, a personal interaction or it's from a legal interaction is very, very important. And you, you said before when you described, and I know the individual you're talking about who is now a federal court judge, about his, his brain being a precise instrument, I think that's what 
I think that adds to the, the skill of a very good lawyer was the problem solving that you said, but also having the ability to, to um, if you like, block out all the noise from the side, but also consider the other person's position because if you can understand where the other person is coming from, you can also then work out how it is that you can block them from doing what they want to do, if you like, or even somehow reach a, a compromise in everybody's best interest. So emotional intelligence, I think, is a real, is a real, it's a valuable skill for, for people if they have it. I think that they're lucky to have it. And if they don't have it, it's something that they should strive for because it, A, it makes for a better society for the reasons that I think are obvious. It makes for better human beings when you consider other people. It doesn't mean that you have to put yourself last all the time, which is a hard, which is the hard side of all those things, which is when you worry too much about what other people think about something, or you always put yourself last. But I think it's a really important human trait to have is to consider others when, when you're doing all the things that you're doing. And let's just talk, for example, very briefly about going for a surf. Now, there are times when you must not consider others, if you like, because you've got to consider yourself to get waves. But at the same time, you can look and say, okay, well, that person's been waiting. You know, I know this wave's coming to me, but sometimes for me that makes me feel better. When I look at the joy of allowing somebody to have a wave who may have thought, oh, that old bloke's going to take another one, that gives, that gives me almost as much enjoyment when they paddle back out and say to me, thanks for letting me have that wave, as me having the wave myself. So there are, you know, there are times and there are, there are um, I suppose there's value you need to put on thinking about what other, what other people want sometimes and what other people might be feeling uh, and then how they consider your actions. Sorry, which, too long. Yeah, which, which sort of ties into, I guess, you think of bedside manner in a way, and I'm not sure what the term is in, in your world, but just the way you would have to be in a position to conduct yourself dealing with clients who no doubt are in probably some of the most stressful times of their life um, coming to you. So you've got, I suppose, that backlog of experience that enables you to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, they're confronted with a number of things, obviously the, the legal challenge, I'd imagine if they're coming to you from a professional sense. And then also, you know, it's a whole new language when it comes to the legal fraternity. So they're playing catch up on that as well. So no doubt those past experiences of which you've had many to help shape who you are. And Martin, you've had, you've had some time off. You've been, uh, you've broken away from no doubt what is a high pressure situation. Um, and I'm not sure how much time have you had off now? Uh, away from that I, managing partner I, role at Coulter Roach? Yeah, I've had about four months away from all work completely. I'm just starting now to um, to sort of wind back up again and working for myself. So, I mean, I just went for a surf just then. I'll never go back to the kind of hours I was doing before when I was running a, a business of 80 employees. It'll be it'll be different now. I'm just working for myself. So sure. I had I had a solid four months to, to reflect on life and, and get my health back. Of course. So... So in that role, and let's just, you know, kind of couple that role that you had, but also across the industry, and I'd, I'd imagine, you know, to kind of recap what that might look like from the outside in, you, you're surrounded by high performers, it's deadline orientated, uh, you're surrounded by highly focused individuals, I'd imagine, drive and ambition, you'd look across the office and I'm sure there's lights on at all hours, so that would come with its pressures for those that leave, you know, at a reasonable time, whatever that time might be. Yes. Um, and you know, doing major overtime, you've got your own clients and then you're managing partner. Can mm. you just tell us a little bit about the pressures and the cumulative effect that that had on your well-being now that you've had 
some time to take stock of that? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting to look back on it because the, the well-being, you're in, a kind of, you're in a kind of state of perpetual, uh, a perpetual motion, I think is the best way to describe it, that you don't notice until you're away from it. I mean, it's, it's an incredible amount of pressure, and I look back because on top of all the things you just described then, on top of it was business development. So I spent most weekends as well during the football season at functions at the football, um, whether it was in Melbourne or, or in um, at the at, um, um, Cadinia Park. So I was six, you know, six, six and a half days a week of perpetual motion, whether it be keeping clients happy, keeping your business partners happy, um, trying to keep employees happy whilst at the same time um, driving them to 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 do their job as well as they possibly could. And not only that, but also carrying the burdens of their, their particular um, private issues, which is a real change in life now, which is what you did. You, we, I carried burdens of, of particular people's, you know, their own health issues. So it was this perpetual motion that kept you going. And it wasn't until I stepped away that I, I basically collapsed for the first month or two that I was sleeping all the time and I couldn't work it out. I lost I lost almost a little bit of motivation to do anything. It's because I've effectively been I've come off that that mill like like you see the you know the uh, the 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 beaver running around on the on the on the ring. It's the same kind of stuff. So it's been an incredibly sort of mind boggling look um, step away. I look back now and I say to myself, why was I doing that? Why would I even do that? On well, Saturday afternoon, I'd be with the kids and I'd have to. I'd have to get a suit on and drive back into Geelong to go to a function. I couldn't think of anything, anything more abhorrent to do now, and that's no reflection of the guests I was with, but just to, to break up my weekend away from my family to do that because that was how was perceived what I had to do. And I can think, well, I never had to do that. I, it was just these demands that I'd placed upon myself, and it was part of what you said earlier about you know, changing my career and wanting to be a success of what I've done and my change. And never, they're not wanting to give it up. So once I once I took the 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 step and stepped away, my my whole life has changed completely. I mean, the, the way I interact with everybody, including my wife and my children, is completely different. I mean, the the idea of of um, what is a stressful situation home and the kids doing something is completely different as well. I I, I could lose my temper quite easily when I'd got I'd get home at eight o'clock at night and. They'd, I'd see the kids. I'd only just seen them before I went to work in the morning, and they'd say or do something, and I'd I'd, I'd quickly rise to wake it because I was so tired and so stressed out. Even though I didn't think that I I didn't think that I was. Uh, it's been an amazing change in my life, and um, almost and and in every way, it's given me a greater inspiration to do everything. I I noticed even say last weekend or the weekend ago when the waves were bigger, I found that a much more enjoyable experience as well as. There's less, there's less tension in my body and everything. So I was able to enjoy riding those bigger waves than I would have, say, two years ago when I would have forced myself to go out there anyway. But the tension would have made the surf itself a battle like work was, where now I'm at this position of back to enjoying surfing again. Sure, I, you know, I don't like the idea of getting held down when it's that big, but I just enjoyed the surf more. I think I enjoyed that surf, I think probably on the Saturday. The Friday, there's too much water moving for me. But on the Saturday, it was one of the nicest big wave surfs I've had for a long time. Mm. And so that um, 
you know, the combination of all the stresses that go on and it's never, never just work. And I think back to what you're saying relating to going to a function or going to a, a something that would appear to be social from the outside, but you've got to go and, you know, pony up and get the game face on as well, which requires energy. And then there's also, I'd imagine just a, there shouldn't be, and you're probably almost a little bit of guilt that goes with it, but you know, you're giving up time with family and you're giving up time for, for friendships and other, other things that nurture your life. So yeah, the six and a half days turns into seven, basically when the, when the, you know, you start to try and detune, I'd imagine on a Sunday, but then you can't help but think there it is around the corner again on Monday that's morning, right. here it comes again. Ready for Monday, start preparing Sunday night for Monday. That's, yeah, that's, those things are, as you point out, they're all, it's all work. So everything that you do is work. And as I said, it, that's why you get the sense that you're on this wheel spinning because you're never away from work. Well, whether you're having a social function, you might actually be enjoying yourself, but it's still work. And every conversation that you have has to be about work. And you would, you would feel that in your own life as well, Sean, that every single conversation that you have has a reflection on you both as a human being, as an you know, individual, but also professionally. And so you've got to be on your guard the whole time. And that's work. That is still work. So... You, in society, you know, and to be successful, you know, you're a successful man as well. To be successful requires a lot more than just, you know, putting you know, your nose to the grindstone. It requires this uh, to be active and to be alert and to be ready, you know, all the time, all the time. Like if you're having a conversation on a Sunday afternoon, it could be related to work because it'll have an effect on somebody. You'll come back and say, well, I met Martin Reed and, you know, he said this and, He's a lawyer. Not all of a sudden, you know, um, oh, he seems like a decent bloke. I might send him some work. It's, it's everything is, is like that. So it's nice to come back to, to being me again. Mm. Did, you, did you ever at any point feel that there was, because uh, you, you, you deviated from the conventional. A lot, a lot of people wouldn't have made the decision that you did, which was to step away from, you know, clearly you'd say from the outside looking in, okay, managing partner success and all that comes with that. And then, a lot of people sustain it until there's a, a a breaking point. Did you ever feel that there was a a breakdown around the corner? Was there any indications? Was there anything where you went, "Hang on, I need to be smart about this. Um, something's going to give." No, no. What? No. I mean, what I did notice was what I noticed was probably in relation to my health that I was, you know, if I got a cold, that the colds would last longer than they normally used to, and I just I noticed that you know if somebody was getting sick and I was sick in the office because people would get sick in the office I was getting started to get sick longer and things like that and so I just started to notice if you like and it's part of the aging process also but just if you like this elongation of of illness so I'd I'd go from one illness and I'd you know I'd have a couple of weeks and all of a sudden something else had happened and so I started to notice that more and more and when I turned fifty five. I thought to myself, bloody hell, dad, my dad died at 57. And, you know, as, as I said before, I'm very similar to dad. So I thought to myself, you know, maybe if I don't, if I don't do something about this, I may end up in the same situation. And you know, I've got much younger kids than he did at the time. Um, I, you know, I spoke with Sarah about it. I said, listen, you know, I think I'd like to get out and, you know, and, and live again. And Sarah supported me. So we, we, we did. And again, I was, it wasn't until I got away from it that I realised that perhaps how unhealthy living like that actually is. And I guess the support of Sarah, you've mentioned a couple of times, enormous in, you know, just being that, um, 
you know, standing side by side in those big decisions that you'd made? Well, I'm one of those very lucky people, Sean, that, you know, I love and respect my wife. And uh, if my wife said to me, you know, I think you should, you know, Sarah said, I think you should continue, you should do this, that I would, <laughs> and vice versa. When Sarah says to me that, that it's okay for me to stop now, then I feel okay. Like I, I didn't feel like, well, I'm, you know, I've let her down or I've let the, the family down or any way, shape or form. I, it, it gives me, you know, she gave, gave me permission and I, you know, and I obviously I readily accepted it, but I also, it, it made me feel validated in my decision. So I'm very lucky that way. So I'm lucky to be able to share everything with Sarah. And I'd like to think that I'll be able to provide the same sort of support to her over the years, but um, she's been very, very instrumental in the making, if you like, of Martin Reed because you need a you need a supportive partner, whether that's a you know male, female, whatever it is. You need a support you need a supportive person there who who can say to you, yes, you're doing the right thing, or no, perhaps you should do something differently. And um, Sarah's been very, very important to me. I'm very lucky, man. Sounds like Sarah might be in the background there too, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if we wind the clock back just a little bit, there's a, an event that occurred when you were a young man, you're 19 years of age, uh, I think you're on the road to Melbourne, and you're involved in a car accident that unfortunately kills one of your mates or your best mate at the time who was the driver of the car, um, Craig, was it Craig Daniels? Craig Daniels, yeah. Yeah, and um, the effect, not only the injuries that you sustained from that, Martin, but also naturally the trauma that was associated with being in something horrific like that. Um, what effect does that have on you now that you look back at, you know, a monumental event like that? It's, well, it's funny because, you know, that the saying always is, you know, that time heals all wounds and it, it's lesson and lesson over the years, save for the fact that some of the injuries are coming back to haunt me now. Um, it was an interesting time in my life because it, to go from to to go from a seemingly invincible position that you are at 19 to have the bloke dying right in front of you um, in the car right next to you and um, and then really you know, after that realizing after being you know in hospital for a period of time and coming out and realizing that he's not going to be there anymore and seeing the suffering um, in particular of his mother um, was very difficult. It was very difficult for me at the time and. Uh, I, I said to you at the time, I, the time it knocked me about, and it knocked me about in terms of motivation in life. It was kind of like, what's the point of it all? I became very, I became very blasé about life. And I think it's one of those times where, you know, you could really lose track of, or lose focus on your life. I, I was very lucky again because I had a strong family um, and a strong father figure to, to keep me in line. But I, I could have really easily, I think, lost direction in life and, and gone off. Um, somewhere into a different in a different way of living, um, but it, it it it's had an effect on me. Again, I I constantly talk about how much extra life I've had than Craig. So Craig died in 1985. So you know, here we are now with how many years is that's 30. Um, is it 36 more years that I've had on it? So it's I've had an incredible amount of life. I've had you know almost twice the amount of life that he's had already. And I, I often think of him and I, I, go to visit, I go to visit his grave. He's out at Belbray. And I look at that little boy that's there in the photo on his grave and, and it makes me reflect again about just how young I was 
despite what I thought about the time, about how worldly I thought it was, but how much life there is to live and how you can make decisions when you're 19 about the rest of your life or, you know, people expect you to make them. And that's a ridiculous notion for somebody to be to, to make a decision at the age of 19 about how they might or might not be doing or what they might be doing when they're 55, for example. So it, it's, it's compartmentalised my life in a way and it's made me think about how life, you shouldn't look at life as one large, you know, one large void rather than the series of them. That, and you look at, you should look at it from a, a, a more shorter term version. I've got, you know, 30 or 40 more years to live, but let's look at the next 10 years rather than planning for what could happen when you're 60 because you might not get there. You might not get there, but also life will change. It will change and it does for most people inexorably when, um, for all sorts of different reasons. So you, you've got to look at life. I'm not going to say to you, you know, you've got to live life day, you know, every day as if it's your last. I mean, that's a ridiculous notion. Nobody can do that. You simply can't. Um, that would mean you'd end up crashing and burning like Elvis Presley or something. But um, uh, you do have to think of life as, you know, in a se- I think in a series of short-term transactions with a long-term goal, obviously, rather than something that, you pan out for the next 30 or 40 years because it's just not going to be like that. I, 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 you know, your audience should reflect on anybody who's my age about what they thought about the world when they were 18 or 19. Um, perhaps I was immature, I don't know, but I'm a completely different person with a completely different view of life uh, than, than I was all those years ago. So um, it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time. Uh, it it, it knocked me about physically and mentally for, for a long time. Uh, I came back from I came back from that. I, does it ever leave you? No. Um, do I think about the accident? I still think about it a lot. But does it cause me pain? Not anymore. It used to. I but I, I can still think back quite clearly to that that whole hour and a half. I think of the rescue when I was rescued in the, the car because the car was up a tree off the little, um, little river bridge. Um, I can I can recall it quite clearly, but I recall it now more as a memory and not as a it doesn't cause any pain. I I think about Craig all the time and what he may or may not be doing, and wonder what his family doing. His brother, his two sisters, and his mother have moved away from Torquay, and I haven't spoken to them any of them now for over twenty years. I don't know what they're doing anymore, um, but it certainly uh, crushed his mother. She, he was the apple of his mother's eye, and it crushed his mother. I, uh, I, I, it was it was a horrible thing to see to to say the way that she you know she'd lost her her son, her only son, at the age of twenty. But, um, certainly made me be a little bit more sensible about how I behaved behind the wheel of Monica. Martin, you've um, had quite the journey and the ability to be able to you know articulate those bigger, broader, more complex concepts um for us all to sort of get inside your mind and how you you know break these events down and and look at them you know that sort of helicopter view you've uh you've got a few things ahead of you now you're you're changing tact you've got your own practice what's what does that all look like for you going forward martin uh well that's that's good it's an interesting question the way i the way i see it is as best i possibly can as a a, a juggling of legal work and what I'd call some, some mental um, exercise with all of the pursuits in life that I love, whether that be um, surfing, 
uh, riding and paddling my ski, stand-up paddleboarding, riding my push bike, gardening, which is another one I love a lot, um, uh, skiing, snow skiing. I'm just trying to think if I've forgotten anything. I'm trying desperately to fit in all those things before my body gives up. So, um, and with a little bit of mental stimulation in there and money, obviously, in, in the meantime. So life for me is a, is a bit more about being present with my family, but also enjoying the things that I, in life that, you can, that I can and still enjoy uh, while I have my health, um, as well as still being able to, to help people, which is what I do, which and I enjoy doing, help people through my, my legal work. So I, I can only see positives for me now. I'm very happy with the stage of life that I'm at. I'm, you know, I'm lucky I'm, I'm reasonably um, financially stable, so I don't have that kind of pressure that a lot of young people have. Um, so I'm in a position to be able to really enjoy my life and enjoy a day like today. Like I did work this morning and I went and had a surf uh, and I'm going to go and play golf this afternoon. And um, guest on episode six of Deep Seeker, of course, Martin. Yes, that's right. Exactly. I'm glad I didn't uh, put this request in six months ago. Might not have got an audience. <laughs> well, I'm not. Too busy. But Martin, you've, um, you've developed the characteristics of being incredibly self-reliant and I personally believe someone that others can rely on. And uh, just to round things out, I'd like to say a big thank you to you, Martin, just for being uh, enabling us just to have some insight and just to talk about those things that have affected you. I'm sure it's going to just help some others get some perspective on on their journey. And that's the purpose of this podcast, which is to, to share and um, for everyone to kind of see behind the curtain a little bit and um, get some insights into how you see the world, how you've shaped yourself, and then naturally your willingness to want to help others. So Martin, thank you very much for your time. And I'll have your contact details in the notes below. And um, again, thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you, Sean. I mean, I would be more than happy to talk with anybody at any time. And if any, if this, you know, if, if anybody listens to this and they say, oh, "I know that bloke," you know, he look, he doesn't, he doesn't see sounds differently from the way he looks. I'd love them to come up and say hello to me one day in the water, Mickey Bob. Absolutely. So everyone, just keep your eyes out for a George Clooney lookalike. Mm, that's right. <laughs> All right, go Martin, go. Say again. Going over the falls. no no in the tube all right man well thanks again i appreciate your time um it's been great to share this with you and uh i'll see you in the water thank you very much for the invitation thank you sean